In today's episode, we explore black and brown activism in educational spaces. I'm Bertie. I'm Allison. I'm Chanel. And I'm Olivia. We're four students at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education in Dr. Strong's Activism in Education class. Let's dive in. In today's episode, we will explore how black and brown student activism in Philadelphia has evolved. We welcome two special guests. The first, Dr. Walter Palmer, a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. His activism and accomplishments are extensive, including his creation of the Black People's University of Philadelphia in 1954 and the current Walter D. Palmer Leadership Learning Partners Charter School, both serving as prototypes for preschool, K-12, and adult alternative social justice education. We will also hear from current high school senior Sam Dennis on his involvement with the student-founded and student-led nonprofit Herb Ed that works cross-generationally to provide quality and accessible urban education to all youth in Philadelphia and beyond. In Penn News, we'll discuss examples of black and brown activism on Penn's campus, including students at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education who wrote to the dean opposing President Trump's election and its effect on campus climate. Additionally, we'll discuss the recent Penn Law controversy when Professor Amy Wax commented on black students' grades. Thanks to students' voices, Wax's comments gained national attention, leading to her teaching duties being suspended. With her reputation tarnished and classes no longer mandatory, um, she's still employed by the university and black law students are contributing to her, sta her salary. How much further can and should the university go on this issue? Before we dive deeper into current events, activism and organizing around education and justice is nothing new for Philadelphia. We begin our episode in 1967. going to say the name of an event person and you think of the location. Ready? Go. Little Rock Nine. Arkansas. Montgomery Bus Boycott. Alabama. Greensboro Four. North Carolina. What do all these locations have in common? They're in the South. What do all the events have in common? They happen during the Civil Rights Movement. Often we forget to look at other places of the United States for evidence of the Civil Rights Movement. We, as educators and historians, make the mistake of leading our students to believe that the Civil Rights Movement happened just in the South, but it happened everywhere. During the 1960s, Latinos led both the Farm Workers Movement for Human Rights of Migrants and the Chicano Movement for the Right to a Higher Quality Education for Mostly Mexican-American Students. Just this weekend, I was having a conversation with some college friends, and one mentioned that she was recently reminded that the desired destination for the Underground Railroad was Canada, not simply the North. And we mustn't forget that after the demands of Brown versus Board of Education, only Southern schools were desegregated in deliberate speed. Schools in the Northern United States remained, and rather, became even more segregated than Southern schools ever were. Without any federal law to push for the desegregation of northern schools, they remain heavily racially and economically segregated today. But make no mistake, black and brown students are not complacent with the state of being, and they never were. We'd like to tell you the story of the fight for desegregation and policy change in our beloved Philadelphia.
1967, the Central Coordinating Committee, or CCC, demanded that schools be better for all students in Philadelphia, especially African-American students. They wanted to see an end to tracking and the forced vocational education system that disproportionately affected African-American students at this time. Philadelphia was a hub of civil rights activity, and students were at the forefront. The Student Action Committee, or SAC, was the organizing force behind any demonstrations especially the 1967 walkouts. Various high school students were involved in SAC's diverse organizing efforts. They were behind every student-led newspaper to protest at the post office. Members of SAC were also involved in organizing efforts associated with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or the SNCC, of Philadelphia. The students had demands that ranged from the removal of uniformed police officers from public schools to the inclusion of African-American studies to the curriculum. We're now going to hear a conversation with Dr. Walter Palmer, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. I mean, I started off in high school um, doing activism stuff because I grew up in, under harsh conditions, poverty, race, and separation, etc. So um, I set up freedom schools. I started setting up freedom schools. And then in setting up freedom schools, my whole, my whole idea was to train uh, the next generation of leaders, right, starting with preschool. And then training preschoolers to help train uh, their parents. The whole idea, mm -hmm. I, I viewed back in the 1950s, 1955 mm -hmm. or so when I started, I, I viewed back then that we were going to lose uh, future generations in terms of a lot of social indices that mm -hmm. takes place, you know, among which drugs, alcohol, and guns, etc. And so the Black People's University was one of what I created. Mm -hmm. And it became one of the first contemporary school, uh, freedom school in modern America, which within, was then modeled by a lot of people. I used Black People's University of Philadelphia to help really um, inform people about all the different things that are going on with Black people issues of health, education, legal, you name it, right? Mm -hmm. Homelessness, welfare, poverty. So the Black Youth University became well known and 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 we were involved with um, people all across the entire city. We were involved with people in West Philadelphia where we mm -hmm. where we started. And then uh, I was raised in, in the Black Bottom, 36 and Market mm -hmm. Street. You may have read the piece that I did on the Black Bottom with mm -hmm. Penn. Yes, right yeah. All those things helped shape me. That's mm -hmm. really, uh, there's a piece they're doing now, a documentary on my life, oh, yeah. and they sent me the trailer yesterday, and I looked at it for the first time today a little bit. Right? And, um, and in it, what I, they call it the, the making of a social change agent, and they, they uh, what do they call it? A legend before his time, right? Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so it starts off telling my story as a child growing up and all the hardships. So what I did was I took those those stories and incorporated it into uh, an education. And I teach uh, social change at Penn. And I'm talking to some of the students, they're at Penn. You know, you guys can't just go around telling people, you, and the school has to stop saying that you're social change agents. You're not a social change agent unless you learn how to do social change. If you mm -hmm. if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. Mm -hmm. That's the proposition I learned as a teenager, growing up under older men and mm -hmm. women, but largely men, teaching me and showing me how to do all this stuff. Right? Mm -hmm. 
I didn't have any books, no theory, I didn't have no history, just life experiences. I made, I created theory and created history, as, you know, just by acting, by doing it. So I tell them, okay, so you're going to be willing to train. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back into your schools and I want you to begin to start organizing. And I want you to work with everybody in the school. I want you to work with the student government. Mm -hmm. I want you to work with the kids who, for the most part, don't feel connected, right? No, we don't want to work with the student government. Well, you have to work with the student government. You have to get people on board who, for the most part, don't necessarily agree with you. That's what social change is. Right. It is, it is one group trying hard to convince another group, right, that there's a need for change. And there's resistance. And then the torque comes the evolution of some consensus that allows you to build on that consensus, right, right to bring about the change. I want you to go back and do this. So they go back and they do that and they get them, get them on board. Now what I want you to do is I want you to inside every one of the schools from middle school up to high school, set up student unions mm -hmm. or black student leagues, your choice. Mm -hmm. We do that. So all the things we I train them every day, they're meeting with me in North Philadelphia, mm -hmm. the leaders. So they they now have black student leagues, black student leagues. I said, well, what I'll do is I'll organize or get college kids or get other guys, people to go on college campuses to do the same thing. So they organized we Penn's first black student the first black student union was in 1967 as support of this movement, as was LaSalle and uh, Temple and St. Joe's. We went to all the colleges and built these student leagues. There weren't many blacks on these places. Right. Penn didn't yeah. have many blacks here at all in 67, okay? So with all that's in place. So now we need to get an understanding of what it is you want. So we work with them, middle school, high school kids, boys and girls, and how to put together this demand, their demand. They come up with 25 demands. Mm -hmm. They wanted to have the right to, one very important piece was, they wanted the right to be able to be called by their African names. And their parents in the 1960s, under the Black Power Movement, which I led, they were into um, changing their names, right? Mm -hmm. And they wanted to be respected. They wanted the right to wear their hair natural as African people, right? They wanted African history. They wanted more black administrators, more black teachers, more black principals, more black, right? Black, black, black. And, um, and these were things which were certainly in line with where I was coming from. And, and uh, these young people were, were, were buying in, had buy-in, and, they, and they, they were really pushing hard. Uh, didn't want to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance if they didn't want to, but didn't want to be made forced to do the Pledge of Allegiance or sing the Star Spangled Banner. 25 demands. Mm -hmm. Now, so the key is we had to put together a document, a narrative to go, right? So we put together with Dr. Clarence Harris and Dr. Maddie Humphreys and a number of other uh, historic figures in Philadelphia. I get all of them together. We meet in my little Black Bottom, Black People's University School, two-story building at uh, 329 South 52nd Street. Mm -hmm. And in the basement, we, we we write first, we write a 100-page document on the history of black people in America told by black people. Mm -hmm. And it's an outline of, you know, from slavery, almost like John Luke Franklin, mm -hmm. to freedom. And we mimeograph, because remember back then, we didn't have um, cell phones, mm -hmm. we didn't have Xerox mm -hmm. and copyright. And these kids work tirelessly, sometimes one, two, three o'clock in the morning, like mm -hmm. about 5,000 copies of what the ink 
breaking down the machine, breaking down, cause, and you're cranking it, right? right, right. I mean, it's heroic stuff, and I tell folks all the time, stop looking at the demonstration. Look at what they did. Mm -hmm. Look at that work. They didn't have to. They could have been off doing other stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And they did that. Eventually, we went over, and Ben Franklin wanted to be even bolder. They wanted to change the name of Ben Franklin to Malcolm X School. Wow. Mm -hmm. So we had a ceremony with big rallies and demonstrations, banner of Malcolm X High School. Right? These are things that are the, 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 that laid the groundwork for any successful movement, right, mm -hmm. and, and long term. Yeah. Now, you got these... These documents, what are you going to do with them? Well, I want all of you to make sure that you um, get this document into every high school and every middle school in the city and get the people there to reproduce it. Right. Because we didn't have the capacity to do that. Right. We want to go to every church and black mm -hmm. guys and the gangs and all, they, they were designated to go into North Philadelphia housing, housing projects, reproduce, mm -hmm. get them in. We want your mothers and fathers to be on board. It is a mistake to try to take young people and just automatically assume you can do anything you want with them or that young people will do anything, mm -hmm. you know, on their own without right. support of the elders. I, I, know, I, know, I said in one student's paper this week, I said, she talked about what the young kids in parking doing. I said, well, tell me something. Have you ever known in throughout world history where a young people's movement succeeded only by young people in the absence of the elders? Mm -hmm. Please give me the evidence. It doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. I'm the biggest fan of young people, right? Because that's all I do is work with young people, right? And from preschool on out. Because Black People University was started as a preschool, a two years old to five years old school. Mm -hmm. And then we build on it to after school and then the high school mm -hmm. kids and uh, the seniors and, you know. But these were steps, right, in order to do it. And a lot of our approach was all about teaching them discipline, accountability, responsibility. You know, teach them manners, teach them um, and understand the world around them. We use the National Geographic magazine to connect them with the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Because for most young people, you know, in black communities, urban black America, they live in a six block radius. That's all right. Yeah. yeah. And they have, I would take kids from here into Germantown, they think they left the state. Mm -hmm. What state are we in now? And that's just tragic when you just think about it. Even today, they think, oh. So now what happens is we want the churches on board, so we create the black ministerium. We create a black, um, all the guys in radio and newspapers that we know, we, we create a black communications network, we create a black political forum, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have all these components, right? I was smart enough to realize that they, they the, the, the establishment, right, is crazy, but it's not lunatic, it's not loony, right? When you start having these kind of forces mm -hmm. around, you've got to think twice about, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so then we pick a date and time. We said, look, now what we're going to do, we're, we're going to have, we're having these, what I call curbstone colleges. Now all these components, the eight were separately done, but they were all integrated, all messed together. So what that meant is on every Saturday, we would wind up picking a neighborhood and on a popular street mm. corner, we have Curbstone College. Mm. When myself and others, both the adult and young population, would go out and make the case. And typically, we could count on it. And people wanted us to come in their neighborhoods. You'd have 500,000 people more 
every Saturday, mm -hmm. every neighborhood, right? And some, sometimes when issues were rising at the same time we're building, I mean, that, that just rev people up because it was mm -hmm. a crisis of a police abuse or something mm -hmm. like that. Like. So we'd have the curbstone colleges, the black student union leagues, you know, the churches, the schools, so all the gangs now, got all the gang leaders. I came out of that environment, so I knew it better than most, right? Because I also was able to navigate in it when I was going to jail as a teenager, right? And became very well known because of my. Ability to fight, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I was a protector, so everybody knew that. Walt Palmer protects, don't mess with no babies, don't mess with no children, don't mess with no women, don't mess with no elderly people, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's not, you know. And so my reputation was, so I was able to use that reputation to get other guys who are now the next generation. Because they respected my reputation, I could talk to them about how right. they could use this power, this strength of being able to control the neighborhood. Right. right. They, they got buy-in. They had buy-in. Right. I mean, uh, so they then became a part of the movement. So we picked November 17, 1967 as the time to strike. Mm -hmm. The 25 demands were in place. Yeah. And so... Uh, we picked student leaders from each of the middle schools and high mm -hmm. schools, and then we told people, the idea is when you do the strike, is for to empty the schools, try to get the schools empty. So you need to have runners, you need to have people mm -hmm. inside the schools to make sure you sweep, sweepers, right, mm -hmm. to sweep out the dogs. Mm -hmm. Some others, a designated group of people in every school will march to the, to, to the yeah. district. So about 5,000 wound up marching all across the city. And it was really funny because it was 10 o'clock was called for. The entire city was standing still. They didn't know what to do. They didn't believe it would happen. They, and, and they were hoping and praying it wouldn't happen. And they had made no preparation to try to stop it if it did happen or even try to control it. Mm -hmm. But Frank Rizzo, who was the commissioner of police, he responded before because he was determined that if it was going to happen, and I think what, what people tell me, his perception of me was that if Walt Palmer says he's going to burn down the city, look for the matches. So his bodyguards used to always tell me, he said, Walt, well, you should really meet him. He really has a high regard for you, right? I, said, mm -hmm. I, can't, I can't meet him because of his notoriety and his adverse behavior with regard to the black community in general and black young people in particular. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, I guess this affinity or thinking who I am, right, um, made him react when nobody else did. Mm -hmm. The Board of Education didn't react, superintendent didn't react, mm -hmm. nobody, nobody reacted. Right. And in fact, the Board of Education didn't even move the cars from, they, we were they knew we were coming to march. Mm -hmm. But they were so sure that it would not happen like that. Well, 5,000 people sure <laughs> those cars are going to be in trouble at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I remember um, the police were saying, uh, me, um, George Fensel was here with the civil disobedience. So he came and he said, well, uh, I don't think anything's going to happen. It's 10 o'clock. I said, George, it's going to happen, right? Uh, he said, it's 10-10, nothing's going to happen. Maybe we should break it up, right? Because I had some <laughs> adults 
marching down the street, mm -hmm. man. I said, George's going to happen. And, and you know, sooner than he said, by 10.15, he was over, right? I could hear on his broadcast band. They've just walked out of Bartram High School. They just walked out of Southern. Mm -hmm. They've walked out of West Catlin. Just, yeah. And after that, it was just a roll. Just a roll, mm -hmm. right? And then, then we knew that it was, it was on the entire city. They're, they're marching down Broad Street. They're coming from Edison. They're coming from, right? This is, you know, you can hear it. They're yeah. broadcasting, right? And, um, and so what happens is it, 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 we have 25 kids negotiating 25 demands with a half dozen adults. Maddie Humphrey's father, Paul Washington, um, several other people. You have ministers there marching. You have politicians, but few politicians, etc. One intense moment came when a group, a very large group, coming from the north side, a watch coming down towards this big group that's already formed, right? And it's the number of the gang guys. Well, everybody froze. I mean, it got so quiet, you could hear Mouse Chris on continent France, and it was just <laughs> that quiet, right? So then what happens is, as they march towards the group, this group, is, it, who's there presently, stops, boys and girls. And all these guys, got to be several hundred of them, right? Well, they got within, you know, even less than a half a block. And they started screaming, and this group started screaming, and they all ran towards each other and hugged each other, started embracing yeah. each other. You know, so we knew then that mm -hmm. the gangs were really you know, on board, and, right. and nothing was going to happen. Because I told them, I used to tell them, I said, you have to protect them. You have to be. And one of the things they asked me, um, at one point they came and said, <laughs> it's really funny, they're cute. But, um, I want to know, is it all right if they bring their guns, right? I said, no, they can't bring their guns. Mm -hmm. They bring their guns, and, and we start shooting. What happens is they, you got these young girls, you got the kids, so you got to protect the kids, right? Well, what happened is later on, when the police came in and waited in, at 12, 12 uh, noon, Albie from Branson High School hollered out the window. They've agreed to all 25 of our demands, 24. There's one more we're working on, and it, it all was agreed on the final analysis, mm -hmm. but the police rioted mm -hmm. uh, just bloody the day. And so I would be arrested for uh, conspiracy, uh, riot, mayhem, assault and battery of police officer, profanity, uh, disruptive behavior, a whole host of things right. who look at me. And, um, that was irrelevant to me. What was relevant to me was the kids were fighting, and I and I was telling them to fight back. Fight! Do not let them. Do not let them beat on you. Right? They couldn't get out. Five thousand. They couldn't run. There's nowhere to go. Right. And um, one policeman uh, got his back broken. I think one of the young guys from North Philadelphia, um, Ridge, threw a, a dolly, at least dolly, on him, broke his back. Um, a police a detective. Um, try to uh, intervene. He got beaten, thrown into the crowd. Right? I mean, it's all help, all help. And then they started breaking the windows on the cars, and and then they fanned out across the city. And then the word traveled without beepers and without without Facebook, etc. Mm -hmm. The word traveled all across the city, and then the kids started coming into Center City. Mm -hmm. and, and and the thing with it is, is that you know, 
even back then, mm -hmm. they were intuitively, even though they weren't even learning these lessons, they were, they were intuitive. We knew that there was a white space. They were being attacked in a white mm -hmm. space. And they chose Center City, the business districts to break out the windows and take yeah. retribution, et cetera. Okay. Mm -hmm. There were a number of court trials that took place. Um, and um, there was one young white fellow who was there. Uh, he, he was doing work in the neighborhood. He was doing work with uh, um, one of our adult organizers. His name was uh, uh, Dave Hornbeck. Dave was an intern working with Sancho Robinson in a youth program. Well, Dave would eventually go off, um, he's in college at the time, he'll go off and he'll come back with his doctor, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And he will be uh, buying for the superintendent's position. Mm -hmm. And there's a choice between him and I think somebody from a black man from Michigan somewhere. And what happened was Dave got the got, got denied because at this point in time, a lot of the young blacks who were in that in that that fight were now in position to influence other people. And one in particular guy I trained from the time he was seventeen, Dave Richardson, the young Dave Richardson, that he went off to become uh, the youngest. Um, state legislator in the history of Philadelphia being elected at 24 years old. Right? He'd taken those skills and those organizations. He used to follow me everywhere and, and we'd go <laughs> have a microphone and, and he'd take notes, copious notes, right? He'd just, <laughs> he got to the point where he would try to act like me, his hands, because I, I talk a lot with my yeah. hands. So he'd use his hands and mm -hmm. I said, just look at you, my God, go get your own identity, right? <laughs> and a lot of them would get upset with me because I would say, come on, our stuff now, it's enough. You go to North Philly, you go to South Philly, you go to West, you, and you go there and you build, right? But stop hanging around me. Okay? So that, I mean, literally, they literally would get upset every time I would push them out, right? You know, mm -hmm. And they, they, they used to always get upset because I, I wouldn't run for mayor, and I wouldn't, you know, we want to be an elected official, and I wouldn't assume up and allow them to say I was the leader, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of those things I did was was behind the scenes, and I mean, I I was always fascinated with the organizing stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. I was fascinated by that, right? And and I, from coming out of the gang days, I mean, I was the guy. I was the organizer. They used to call me the general. Like, if we're going to fight. We want the general to make sure, you know, that we get in this and get out of this safely, right? Mm -hmm. And then the same thing in the movement, the social movements, a million women march, you know, the whole yeah. So would you say that that is the most important piece of advice that you would give to young like, activists yeah. today? Which part? The organizing, like dedicating oh, so much time yeah. to organizing. Oh, no question, no question. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, Helen Jim um, gave a dedication to city council where a resolution was made, right, and they gave her some work. And... Um, and then she had a, um, a forum at the Afro American Museum that evening. Mm -hmm. I think it was that evening or the next evening, I'm not sure which, which I think it was on Friday the next day. And, and, I, and, I, and I said the same thing. You have to stop celebrating the drama. Mm -hmm. And you have to celebrate the organizing. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I mean, all good acting needs coaching. And so you have to view, the, you know, like if you enjoy a movie, you have, you have to learn how to enjoy the people who do the drama coaching mm-hmm. and the director and the editing and the, all the right. things behind right. the scenes, right? That the, front, the finished piece is not it. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of all, certainly they're important, they're key players, yeah. but it's this, right? Right. So young people are fascinated. When Parkland, they had a website which showed you all the things they were doing. Mm-hmm. They told, showed you how you get involved in your state. They set their network out all across the country, I mean, everywhere, right? right. And they, they had money, they were raising money, they, and and it was long-term, sustained. Uh, I had, which I have, I was sorry that, that, to hear that they asked, that they wanted to have a half million people be there. Because the one thing you don't do is you never telegraph numbers unless you reduce the numbers. Always make sure you have less numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this was the fight that Louis Farrakhan got in with the with the with the government trying to argue against the uh, park rangers that he had a million people at the Million Man March. The Million Man March became marred by virtue of him arguing back and forth. They mm-hmm. saying it was only half a million people. He's saying it was a million people. You can't win. They show their graphics. They have they have their helicopters with their, you know, mm-hmm. um, filming, et cetera, right? And they, 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 they aggregate how many people might be within certain frames, right? Right, right. So, so no, I mean, I think organize, organize, organizing. I mean, that's the key. They, next mm-hmm. year, I think, they're going to try to do the uh, Walter Palmer, Walter Palmer um, lecture series, right? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> one of the things that I told them, if we, if you do this, the lecture has to be about social change, organizing and so organizing mm-hmm. for social change, because mm-hmm. that's what I've always been teaching all my life of organizing for change, mm-hmm. right? So therefore, no lecture should come up and talk about the history, or talk about a projection, or talk about a philosophy, mm-hmm. without talking about what were the organizing principles that, right. that brought about the change. Mm-hmm. People should leave with some idea of how to go home and organize. Right, and actually okay? do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because you got, you got, I asked my students last week, I said, tell me something, how many people don't like Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. All the hands go up. How many of you people hope something bad happens to him? A lot of hands go up. I said, well, tell me something. Do you think that's going to change anything? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> what? How many people hope we should be dying? Why don't you kill him? Mm-hmm. Don't get somebody else to do your wet work. You have to You have to stop it. You, you wish and won't do it. Mm-hmm. If you be a piercing. Your savings bank here. And as a kid growing up, right, trying to save money for my mother, I always promised I wanted to buy a house for my mother. Right? So I put 10 cents, 15 cents mm-hmm. in this thing. Well, PSFS's slogan was wishing won't do it, saving will. Mm-hmm. Never forgot it. Yeah. Wishing won't do it, saving, saving will. will. Yeah. Yeah. That's the same thing. Okay. I mean, wishing won't do it, organizing. We would like to thank Dr. Palmer for taking the time to speak with us. In the Works is a documentary of Dr. Palmer's life and activist work. 
we will post any updates on our class website. For now, let us continue with the story of 1967. Consequences faced by students and community members are perhaps what makes this moment in Philadelphia's civil rights history so significant. Students did not back down in the face of a brutal police and community response. With the presence of two busloads of police, the peaceful demonstration rapidly became violent. The commissioner of police, Frank Rizzo, was quoted telling his officers to get their black asses. Reports from the students state that the atmosphere at the demonstration was festive and light. Yet, on this day, 22 students were seriously injured by police action, with another 57 students arrested. Public reactions to the demonstration and violence are polarized. Some criticize Rizzo for using unnecessary force against unarmed students. However, others are pleased with Rizzo's actions, singing praise for his swift and decisive actions that suppressed what they felt was a violent and unneeded demonstration. Within police reports, there are startling discrepancies in the actions of the Philadelphia Police Department. Some reports indicate that the police action was an attack, while others see the decision to use force as a necessary measure to mitigate a riot that had occurred in a predominantly white community. As a result of the riot, Superintendent Mark Shedd made initial reforms that appeased the students, but not the general public. The reforms met some of the student demands, such as providing draft counseling services, creating a student's bill of rights, granting students a voice in future curriculum, as well as decision matters. The general public found these reforms to be unnecessary, and as a result, he was eventually forced to resign. Later, in 1972, Rizzo was elected as mayor of Philadelphia and would be re-elected re again in 1976. His statue still stands in front of the Municipal Services Building Plaza on JFK Boulevard between 15th and Broad Streets. Many attempts to remove the statue have been made over the years, however, they have ultimately been unsuccessful. Of the list of original demands made in 1976, African American history became a requirement for high school students in the school district of Philadelphia to graduate as late as 2005, but the student activist work is still necessary in the city of brotherly love. College student activism has been alive and well for several years. During the civil rights era in Greensboro, the Greensboro sit-ins were considered some of the most well-known sit-ins of the civil rights movement. On February 1st, 1960 at 4.30 p.m., those that became known as the Greensboro Four sat down at a lunch counter inside Woolworth store at 132 South L Street in Greensboro, North Carolina. The four, all men, purchased some products from the desegregated part of the store and experienced no issues. However, after, they attempted to get service at the lunch counter of the store. Unfortunately, the store upheld segregation rules and they were refused service and they were asked to leave by the store manager. Instead, they stayed and engaged in a planned silent protest to gain media attention for the civil rights movement. The following day, the four returned with more than 20 other students to join for a second day of the sit-ins. Students brought their books and study at the counter, not being served, by workers and being heckled by the white customers. The sit-ins continued several days afterward, bringing more people than the day before. As the sit-ins gained media attention, it sparked sit-ins from students at other institutions in North Carolina and Southern cities such as Richmond, Virginia, Nashville, Tennessee, Jackson, Mississippi. 
The sit-ins resulted in the closure and desegregation of many cut lunch counters before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The four-seat portion of the lunch counter was acquired by the Smithsonian Institute in 1993. Coming to the present day, on September 5th, the White House called Congress to pass legislation replacing the Obama-era program called the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. So DACA would be ended in six months, and the Trump administration had announced at the time. In response to Trump's decision, students began organizing on college campuses to stand in solidarity with undocumented students and put pressure on their institution to show support and provide safe spaces for undocumented students. Um, Students at several colleges and universities, including the University of Pennsylvania, Tufts University, University of California, Berkeley, University of Colorado, and many more organized to stand in solidarity and protest. Um, In an article published on Splinter by Jorge Rivas, they gave an update on DACA as of 3.05.18. When the Trump administration rescinded the Deferred Action for Child Care Arrivals Program last year, it it set an arbitrary deadline of March 5, 2018, for Congress to deliver a solution to replace DACA which shields undocumented immigrants from deportation. Now, the deadline has arrived and Congress has failed. Um, All four immigration bills that Senate took up to address the issue were voted down. At this point, the March 5th deadline is, quote unquote, essentially irrelevant um, because two federal judges have ordered the Trump administration to keep the embattled program in place. Now, earlier this year, a federal judge in California ordered the Trump administration to maintain the DACA program on a nationwide basis as a legal challenge to the president's decision going forward. Then a month later, a federal judge in New York said that the Trump administration had not offered adequate legal reasons for ending DACA and ordered the administration to continue accepting DACA renewal applications. The Supreme Court last um, the Supreme Court declined um, a Trump administration request to intervene in the situation. So immigrant immigrant rights activists um, cite a Migration Policy Institute study that found an average of 915 unauthorized immigrants would lose their DACA status each day beginning March 6, 2018, through March 5, 2020. UCSIS claims a total of 13,090 DACA permits. <clears throat> are due to due to expire in March. Currently, DACA recipients can continue to renew their applications, but the program is still in limbo because court rulings could change the situation at any moment. Um, if the challengers to Trump's decisions lose in court and there's no legislative solution in place, DACA recipients could be left without a safety net. That's why immigrant rights activists are continuing to pressure Trump and Congress to support legislation that protects DACA recipients. Therefore, you know, these words that are found here in Splinter um, just proves that the organizing that these students are doing is extremely important. And on many campuses, there are diverse amount of students who are standing with DACA students. Um, One student at the University of Pennsylvania's campus was pictured holding a sign saying, this is not just a Latinx issue. So what do these demonstrations have in common, even though they're 50 years apart? Um, They both included controversial political issues that impacted the lives of black and brown students. 
um, even though both demonstrations have outside organizations fighting for the same rights. There's also a power in the students using their voices and agency to show solidarity and speak up for issues that is impacting them and will impact their future. Who knows what the aftermath will look like for these young college students organizing and standing against Trump, the Trump administrative decision. But I'm sure the Greensboro Four didn't know that those four seats will now be featured in the Smithsonian Institute. But so far, since the announcement more than six months ago, legislation has failed and demonstrated demonstrations has have continued to spread. In addition to campus activism being a reaction to controversial political issues, there are also student groups organizing based on racial discrimination and bias on their campuses from professors. During an interview last year, University of Pennsylvania Law School professor Amy Wax was uh, quoted for her controversial statements about black students at Penn Law. She was quoted in saying, here's a very inconvenient fact, Glenn. I don't think I've ever seen a black student graduate in the top quarter of the class and rarely, rarely in the top half. She said these statements in an interview with Brown University professor Glenn Laurie in a video in a video of the interview has gained attention nationally and has been covered on national news stations like CNN. Now, Wax is no stranger to controversy. In August 2017, Wax co-authored an op-ed for the return of the 1950s American cultural norms. In a subsequent interview with the Daily Pennsylvanian, a student-ran publication at the University of Pennsylvania, she said Anglo she said that Anglo-Protestant cultural norms are superior. After receiving widespread backlash from students and faculty, Wax spoke at an event sponsored by the Penn's Federalist Society in October to criticize much of the reaction to her editorial. Last month, Wax published another op-ed bashing the lack of civil discourse on campus and claiming that Rucker asked her to step aside from her position. Now, in response to her most recent comments regarding the black students at the University of Pennsylvania, a few graduate student groups have gathered together to sign a petition um, to have her removed from her teaching duties in the law school. As it stood when these comments were spoken, every first year law student had to take a class with a required class, a core class with Amy Wax. In response to her controversial comments about black students, one of the leading groups was the Black Law Students Association. Black Law Students Association organized a petition to gain support to have Amy Wax relieved of her teaching duties. These efforts were led by President Nick Hall. He was quoted by CNN in saying, this is about the resilience of Black Penn Law students to rise against bigotry. His group also sent out a tweet in response to her comments by saying, Professor Amy Wax has violated the spirit of Penn Law's great non-disclosure policy by claiming demonstrably false allegations against black students and alumni. Hashtag Amy Wax is the problem. And this hashtag was something that they used on Twitter. And when they posted it in messages, they hashtag Amy Wax is the problem. 
hashtag stand with BLSA. Um, the BLSA also received um, support from other groups across campus, one including um, the Black Graduate Student Association. The president of the Black Graduate Student Association made a comment, made comments about um, in regards to Amy Wax's comments about black students. She was quoted in saying, we know Wax is liable to behave in racist ways and say racist things and the university didn't do anything about it before. She went on to say, Penn Law desperately needs to convince his students that they are taking this seriously. I hope they explicitly speak against the lies and show that there is no proof proof to them. Now, in regards to the aftermath of this, um, Amy Wax has been removed of teaching her mandatory first year courses, um, but there are still a lot of involved constituents such as current students um, on campus across all disciplines saying that she still gets to enjoy the same status of other tenured colleagues. So she still gets to keep her job, her her salary, um, her seniority, and her opportunity to to teach classes there. Um, So this is something that is still going on on campus. The the pressure that that the university received from students has caused them to remove her of that um, required teaching duty for all those students to take her class, but she still has the opportunity to um, teach classes otherwise and still gets her full salary. So now we're wondering what the aftermath of this will be. Now, other constituents of the university have also come out and said, like, hey, it is imperative for the dean to state that these claims are false. Um, and Rucker said in a statement that black students have graduated in the top of the class at Penn Law and the law review does not have a diversity mandate. Um, so this is something that is coming from affiliates of the university and it would be nice if it came from the dean of, of of Penn Law to disparage her comments and to uphold their code of conduct for speaking about grading. Now, this is a classic example of the power of black activism, student activism on campus um, and how students come together to speak against the injustices happening. Now, after hearing from the black students at the University of Pennsylvania Law School engaging in activism and using their voice to invoke change, we're going to now hear a conversation with a student um, with further calls to action of how students can engage, collaborate, um, and what they can do to further push their agenda um, against the injustices that they want to stand up against.
I'm here with Sam Dennis, a senior in high school and a member of Herb Ed, a student-run, student-led organization. Um, Sam, can you tell us a little bit about Herb Ed? Yeah, so Herb Ed was founded by myself, Tamir Harper, and Luke Risher. We go around basically going through the ideas of student participation and student engagement. We're a nonprofit that advocates for quality and efficient urban education in the city of Philadelphia with the hopes to expand nationally. Uh, we garner this idea from basically Tamir Harper and Luke Risher talking it out through a conversation that was going on in school, um, basically saying how do we basically amplify the voices of students across the Philadelphia region. Uh, so that's when we, all three of us came together and we just tackled the idea of urban. Awesome. How are you doing that in con concrete ways? What are some issues that you've been working on or pro projects? Yeah, so mainly Urbed has four main focuses. Uh, we have teacher diversity, uh, building conditions, a school-to-prison pipeline, and local control. So ever since the SRC, the School Reform Commission here in Philadelphia, has been disbanded or dissolved, uh, local control hasn't been too much of a problem since, you know, now that we're gaining a people's board. Uh, so there's nothing really focusing on that one right now, but we do have the other three main topics, which was teacher diversity, uh, school-to-prison pipeline, and building conditions, uh, all three of them having some kind of impact on the student, student's education. So by having these three focuses on with Urbed, we can tackle these three ideas and push it out to a bigger platform to have people understand what it is that's imposing a difference on a student's education. Can you give us an example of a project or specific policy or programming under one of those pillars? Mm -hmm. uh, so for the school to prison pipeline, we have uh, current teacher-student conversations that happen at Science Leadership Academy. They used to go from 5 to 6 o'clock, and it's basically a roundtable discussion with students and teachers alike throughout the Philadelphia School District talking about how these uh, rules are set in place and how these transitions happen for students who go straight from high school or any uh, educational factory or any educational system straight into prison. So we have these conversations with students to see, and students and teachers alike to see how we can prevent that and how we can amplify the voice of students and also prevent these things from happening again. So using that teacher-student dynamic to talk about some of these important issues, how important is intergenerational um, collectivity in addressing some of uh, issues faced by youth and how important is the youth voice in that? Mm -hmm. So we have adult figures in a student's life who have been doing the things that students are just now starting to get into many more years than students have begun even thinking about these types of uh, these types of conversations or these types of events. So when we have students who are now more ingrained and they're doing their own research and they're forming teams in order to tackle these problems, we want to have these adult figures support us. We want to have these adult figures understand the problems that we are going through and have us on their back and have us um, understanding that we are not just students, but we are advocates, but we are um, activists, that we are able to do things like this and they can understand and perceive that as these students are going to be the next, the future leaders of um, education, the future leaders of technology, the future leaders of whatever you, you may have it. Uh, so when we have these students and these adults collaborating and understanding one, each, one another and understanding that they've been through the same process, even when the adult was younger on his own, we can finally take that and push it even further than we have when it's just students or when it's just adults. But when we come together, we can have this major push 
in the topics that we are discussing and we can have more people come on and we can just have a bigger fan base and we can have a bigger group of people understand that these problems are more relevant today. Great. Um, so if you were talking to the broader Philadelphia audience or the broader national audience mm-hmm. um, on a specific one or two call to actions that you have as a student yourself, but also as a community of ac- activists and advocates, mm-hmm. um, what are some of your pressing call to actions right now? Yeah, so currently Urbed is going through a process of selecting students across the country. We call this program UE Advocates, where basically we gather students from middle school to high school and we basically give them the tools and the necessities that they need in order to become advocates, in order to become activists in their local communities. So we, if they need funding, if they need resources, if they need connections, we can provide that to these students in order to have whatever they're interested in amplifying, amplified. So we give these students uh, different resources and we give these students um, basically connections and contact information for anyone on the Urbed team if they have any inquiries or questions. And we basically just say, go for it. We basically say, go ahead and... Um, you know, tackle this problem because you are uh, a student who has the capabilities of making a change. Well, thank you so much, Sam. Um, I applaud you for the work you and Urbet are doing, and good luck with your senior year. Thank you. As you've heard today, student activism across the spectrum is important and powerful, especially here in Philadelphia. We've heard stories of student activists in both K-12 and 12-plus spaces that have utilized their voices to challenge oppression and seek changes. If you identify as a student activist, never doubt your ability to instigate change and transform the world around you. As you've heard today, students are often influential driving forces when it comes to meaningful changes. If you're an adult ally, never forget your ability to assist the youth in meaningful ways that elevates and amplifies student work, never discounting them for their age. A special thank you to our interview participants, current and former student activist Dr. Walter Palmer and current student activist and all-star student Sam Dennis from Herb Ed. Thank you to our professor Dr. Strong and our classmates in activism and education for all of their assistance and feedback in the development of this podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast today, please check out the information listed on this page. You'll find links to our social media, Activist Corner, as well as lots of other great content produced by our esteemed peers. On behalf of the Black and Brown Student Activism Working Group, thanks for joining us today.